All right, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 5 as we go through this book. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 987. I want you to picture yourself at your house. You're at your house, but here's the problem. Tonight, someone is going to break into your house. You don't know when, but you know that it is going to happen. What do you do? You might stay awake and turn on the light so that the person might come up to the house and change their mind. You might prepare a firearm that you own or put a baseball bat within your reach, whichever you feel comfortable with. You might punch 911 into your phone or put it on speed dial. Lots of things you could do to prepare. But it might be easier to know what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't go to sleep. You wouldn't do anything that would distract you from staying alert and watching the house. In fact, you'd be pretty disciplined, focused on the task at hand. I open with this hypothetical situation because it's the same idea, the same analogy that Paul uses in our text in 1 Thessalonians. And Paul talks about this idea of a thief breaking into your house to help the Thessalonians and us understand the return of Christ. He says it straight out. Jesus will return like a thief in the night. And so we're going to try to understand that metaphor, draw some applications from that metaphor to help us understand what do we do as we wait for the return of Christ? What does it mean that Jesus is coming back on the last day like a thief in the night? And what does it mean for our eternal destiny and the destiny of those around us? Big idea there in the outline provided in your bulletin is this, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God, demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So let's turn now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verses 1 to 3, and we're going to see the introduction of this analogy, like a thief in the night. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 3. Now concerning the times and the season, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape." Now, beginning of this chapter, you see the words now concerning there. Usually when Paul uses this, he is responding to a question from the church. 
And so the church had extra questions about the return of Christ. And they wanted to know about the times and the seasons. They wanted to know about when this was going to happen. They understood that it was going to happen, but they wanted more information. And we need to see what, how Paul answers them. Look at the second part of verse 1. You have no need to have anything written to you. The idea is that the information they have is enough. And what is that information? Look at the part, uh, second part of verse 2. Excuse me, the first part. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Apparently it was sufficient for them to know that they wouldn't know when the return of Christ was going to happen, but that it was going to. One author puts it this way, Paul assures the church that they did not need to add anything to the instruction they had already possessed on this theme. What they knew, they should remember and put into practice. It would be good to pause here because throughout our history, people claiming the name of Christ have made whole careers about saying exactly when it's going to happen. They find a verse and find some numbers and start multiplying and dividing and adding and come up with some pretty specific dates. There is an understandable temptation here to want to know more than is given. And we see it here in the Thessalonians, but we can see it in ourselves and in our culture. In one sense, we say, God, it wasn't good enough that you just said we won't know. We really want to know. And whether we'd say it or not, there's this idea of trying to find out the information that God didn't give us. And actually, that that's saying something about our view of God. That he's withholding the good bits. God, why won't you tell us the fun parts? Instead of being content with what he has said. Let me say very clearly that if someone gives you a date and says this is when Jesus will return, that is one of the clearest ways to know that they are a false teacher and you should reject them. Because guess what? None of them have been right. And it's been going on a long time. I was talking to someone the other day about Y2K. You guys remember Y2K? One of the funniest things about Y2K is we should have known because there was a Y1K. In the year 1000, everyone was expecting the end of the world. Guess what? They weren't right then. We didn't need to turn our computers off at Y2K. Anyone who says anything different is lying to you. And it's one of the truest signs that someone is a false teacher. But beware that temptation to say, God, what you gave me wasn't good enough. Because that is a heart issue. And God has given us what is sufficient. It is sufficient to know 
that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So let's take a few moments to pull apart that metaphor. What does it mean that Jesus is returning like a thief in the night? This may feel oversimple, but it's good to walk through these things. Thieves don't tell you when they're coming. No successful thief comes up to your door with his day planner and sets up an appointment. So it is with the return of Christ. We know it will happen. That is clear from Scripture. We don't know when. And to help us understand this further, Paul sort of switches metaphors in verse 3 to talk about the metaphor of pregnancy. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Why does Paul compare pregnancy and giving birth to the return of Christ? Two things, two aspects here. It is sudden and inescapable. A woman who is pregnant knows that the time for labor will come. And I tread on thin ice as someone who has not actually gone through this, I know. But in one sense, you cannot make labor happen. Right? It sort of happens to you. And in a similar way, the return of Christ happens to the world. But once pregnancy starts, it will finish. And that is that inescapable aspect to the return of Christ. The return of Christ in a similar way is inevitable and inescapable. It doesn't matter if people are saying there is peace and security. Nothing you say prevents the inevitable return of Christ. Even if everyone is saying it's not going to happen, Jesus will not come back in judgment. Even if we took a vote and the popular vote won across the world, should Jesus return? Jesus will return. And so the question becomes, what do we do while we wait? Because the Bible is very clear. It will happen. So the only real question is, what do we do while we wait for it to happen? So let's look now at verses 4 to 8. And this idea here of being sober and awake in godliness. Let me read verses 4 to 8. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now again, Paul mixes in this metaphor of light and day and darkness and night to contrast believers with unbelievers. And this is a common way 
to talk in the Bible of light is good, darkness is bad. Right? And he even explains sort of why. Because you do bad things under the cover of night. But the first contrast that he says in verse 4, he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Believers in Christ know that Jesus is returning. So in that sense, his return is not a surprise. And just knowing and admitting and believing that Christ will return is one way of being prepared. But for the majority of this part of the passage, the way that we are to be prepared is to live a life of godliness and holiness. Light and dark, day and night, refer to godly and righteous activity versus sinful and wicked activity. Church Father Chrysostom about this passage wrote, For it is just as corrupt and wicked men do all things as in the night, escaping the notice of all and enclosing themselves in darkness. For tell me, does not the adulterer watch for the evening and the thief for the night? Does not the violator of the tombs carry on his trade in night? We are not people of the night. Therefore, since we belong to the day, we keep awake and are sober for the return of Christ. Again, building on this idea of if someone's going to break into your house, two things you're probably not going to do is fall asleep and get drunk. Okay? If, if someone's going to break in your house, I don't recommend those two things. Because how could you defend your house? So while we wait for the return of Christ, we are to stay alert for his return and act with self-control. Verse 7, we do not sleep, we are not drunk. Again, using these ideas to help us understand the godly lives that we are called to live. One commentator points out that to, again, pull the metaphor a little bit, to be sleeping in this way is to live a life of moral indifference. Because if Jesus really isn't coming back, then it really doesn't matter what I do. And so I fall asleep on the judgment of God because I don't actually believe it's happening. But if Jesus is returning in judgment, then I should live accordingly. I should live knowing I'm going to have to give an account for what I do. So we are not to be morally indifferent, nor are we to be lazy and undisciplined in our lives like a drunk. When you're drunk, the alcohol is in control. But we are called to live lives of self-control lives of holiness, that, that need discipline. You cannot live a life of holiness without discipline. And so we are to stay awake and we are to be sober as we live lives of faith, hope, and love. Look at verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate Bless, ugh, excuse me, the breastplate of faith and love 
and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Again, thinking of this idea of defending your house, he uses the defense of that day, armor. But instead of actual armor, because we're not actually talking about actual thieves, what guards us for the day of Christ? Lives of faith, hope, and love. Now, in addition to seeing this throughout Paul's work, in fact, theologians refer to faith, hope, and love as the Pauline triad, if you want to impress your friends next time you're at Bible study. But we've also seen this before in 1 Thessalonians. The beginning of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the ways that Paul summarizes the Christian life. And in verses 4 to 8, this life of holiness, Paul will often use a life of faith, of trusting God, and a life of love both for God and for others to summarize all of the commands that were given in God's word. That is a life of holiness, of sober holiness that we are called to live. It is a life that trusts God in all circumstances and a faith lived out in good works. It's a life that demonstrates love to God and our brothers and sisters in Christ and to our neighbors in our community. How do you prepare for the thief in the night? By living lives of faith and love. The next verses, verses 9 and 10, speak to that third aspect of hope. So again, picture yourself in the metaphor here. You're waiting for the thief to break in. You're being prepared. How do you prepare for the return of Christ? Living a godly, holy life. But you also wait with hope. And this is where the metaphor breaks down. Because if a thief is coming to break into your house, his success or failure is based on your performance to defend your house. Your hope is if you have a good enough uh, alarm system, or you're a good shot, or the cops are already close by. That's your hope if a thief is breaking in. But that is not our hope in Christ. Our hope is actually found in Christ himself, not in our ability to be prepared. Let's look at verses 9 and 10, and we'll see our eternal hope. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. What is the final chapter of God's plan for his people? What happens when Christ returns? God's plan for us, his work on our behalf, is for us to escape the wrath of his judgment. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. It is a wrath we deserve, but through 
Christ, we have been saved from that wrath. But we must note that if this is true, that if believers are not destined for wrath, that those who have rejected Christ are destined to face the just wrath of God. This is why we are motivated by the truth of Jesus' return to share the good news of Jesus with those who do not know him. Because apart from Christ, all people face the just wrath of God against sin. Those who reject Christ are destined for condemnation. But God's plan for believers... is not condemnation, but rather it is our salvation which continues on into eternal life. That if you are a believer in Jesus, you can know your eternal hope. We see this in the second part of verse 10. That through the sacrificial death of Jesus verse 10, who died for us, that we are saved and that it is all believers. Look at the second part of verse 10. Whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Again, this takes us back to chapter 4 where Paul described the set, all believers as either asleep, those who had died before the return of Christ, and those awake, those who are living at the return of Christ. And when you have the two parts, when you have the two parts, it represents the whole. So you're either awake or you're asleep. There's no third category. So when he says awake or asleep, he means all believers. Our salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. What do you do as you wait for the return of Christ? You hold on to the rock of hope that was won for you through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And so we can say with Paul with confidence, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's at this point, like our passage last week, where Paul gives us a therefore. Where he gives us how are we to apply these truths. Again, as we saw at the beginning of this passage, the Thessalonians knew. They knew what Paul was saying. And as I quoted earlier from the, from the commentator, the idea was, you know this, now live it out. Live what you already know. Verse 11 helps us know how to use this truth. And again, as we talked about last week, that when we talk about the return of Christ, it is something we should all study. We can't ignore what the Bible says about the return of Christ. But the diagrams and the charts are secondary to the purpose of being told these truths. And we see that in verse 11. 
Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So with all of this being said, all of this being said about the return of Christ, what is the purpose? Why, am, why is Paul telling us this? Two things. We're to encourage one another and build one another up. Let's again look at those one at a time. Encourage one another. Again, we saw this last week. This idea of the comfort that the truth of the return of Christ has. That the Bible is very clear. God will judge sin. God will judge injustice. Even if our human courts allow someone to escape justice, God sees and God will execute righteous justice. We also see in here that the certainty of the return of Christ encourages us because we know how our story will end. We know the end, and we know that that is going to be the end. It's not one option of many. This is what will happen. And the stability of that gives us stability in our own lives. The future is not chaos. The future is according to the gracious and just plan of God. But in addition to that, in addition to that comfort that we have in the return of Christ, there's another verb there. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another The two commands of encourage one another and build one another up match the twofold purpose of the text as a whole. So, just as we are held up to hope for the return of Christ and that it is our certain hope, and that relates to the encouragement, so too the call to live sober, godly lives connects here to this call to build one another up. Just as we saw here and last week that encouraging and comforting one another is a community event, he doesn't say be encouraged and be built up just as you are doing. He says encourage one another and build one another up. And we're to encourage and comfort one another. But we are also to build one another up in the pursuit of godliness. About this, one author writes, it describes the way believers help each other grow and progress in faith. You are called to spiritually invest in the lives of others so that they grow in their holiness and their godliness. And they are called to invest in you. One of the great lies is that we have to either be a giver or a taker. But in true Christian community, we both give and receive. And you're unhealthy if you're only doing one. A healthy church 
obeys this command that each of us are building one another up and being built up by each other. There is a life to this understanding of community. And again, I think it matches reality. That yes, we need comfort, we need encouragement, but we also need to be built up in our holiness and challenged to live a life that is pleasing to God. And again, if we're honest, I, there's a limit to how much I can challenge myself because I, man, I have a real sliding scale for myself. If you really want to grow, you need other people helping you to grow. And that is what we are called to do with these truths of the return of Christ. To judge sin and to take those who belong to him to eternal life. It both encourages and comforts us and pushes us to holiness. Comfort and growth and godliness are community events and we need each other. A couple points of application as we close this morning. Number one, be alert and sober in your Christian life as you wait for the return of Christ. The picture of the metaphor of this passage is someone being ready for the thief, of someone who is focused and not distracted by less important issues. The person is of someone who is serious about what is going on. Again, you think about the seriousness of a thief breaking into your house. Do you treat your, your life as a disciple of Jesus as seriously? Pictures of someone who practices self-control. I love the parable in Matthew 24 that Nick read a portion of for us this morning. In the parable, God is the master who puts his servants in charge of the house and then goes away. Let me read you another excerpt. This is verses uh, 46 and 47. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. The faithful servant works, does what he is supposed to do because he does not know when the master will return. In contrast, Jesus says, there's another type of servant. He says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. That servant receives ultimate judgment. If we are still here when Christ returns, we need to be sober and awake so that Jesus finds us at work when he comes. Secondly, your only hope is salvation by God's grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear. Your only hope to escape the perfectly just wrath of God against sin is the salvation that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is our only hope in the judgment that Jesus will bring. 
Again, it is not an issue of might he bring it. The Bible is clear. Jesus will return. Jesus will judge the world. And those who escape that judgment are those who have placed their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the hope of all believers, dead or present at the return of Christ. Number three, encourage one another and build one another up. Our denomination's district superintendent is fond of this phrase when speaking at our meetings. He says, we are better together. And in general, as Americans, as Pacific Northwestern people, as islanders, (laughs) we have a great temptation to be too individualistic, especially in our faith. We are not alone in following Jesus. We need each other. And not just in a way that we are served, but in the way that we are called to serve each other. We're called to encourage each other. We're called to help each other grow in our faith. We are waiting for Jesus with a godly life as we wait in hope for his return. So who in your life needs encouragement? Who in your life needs to be built up? I don't know if you noticed the big idea from when you took a membership class, but it's actually a quote from our church's statement of faith. This is what we believe as a church, and I think it encapsulates well all of the different aspects of our passage today. That call to trust God as we wait for the return of Christ, to find our hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to live a godly life as we wait. In closing, let me read it one more time. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God, demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that we would find comfort And give comfort as we wait on the certain return of Christ to save his people and to take us into eternal life. And God, that we would be awake and sober in our Christian lives. That we would live lives of constant expectancy, of godliness, of faith and love. That if you were to return While we are alive, you would find us at work in godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.